1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Katie. Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And Vanity Fair's senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Wow, as you can tell from the tone of voices, (laughs) uh, this is the first time we've recorded since last week's election. If you listened to last week's episode, as Richard did, he was on vacation and, uh, Tried to listen to us after the election results and apparently couldn't get through it.
2: Yeah, I love listening to you guys, but I had to turn it off and take
3: one of about 20 naps I took in a 40 <laughs> period <laughs> Follow, just because I didn't want to be awake.
1: Oh, no. Yeah.
3: I was taking some of the blame. Several people on Twitter were like, I'm listening to Little Gold Men, and it's so horrifying when Mike Hogan says that Hillary's going to win. <laughs> it made me no. feel personally responsible.
1: I mean, we were... F- far from the only people. Who we were are not the only people. That, no. We
3: do kind of pride ourselves on being able to predict stuff, though. Know, so that Lord. sucks for us.
1: Well, um, maybe better for us to focus on what we know a little bit more about. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're still grappling with the result of the election. It has serious consequences for pretty much every aspect of American life. And uh, if you want to read the political and societal take on it, the hive at VanityFair.com has some great coverage. We're an award season podcast and uh, we don't want to diminish the legitimate concerns about foreign policy. immigration and civil rights and the environment and the economy and press freedom and what the Oval Office will look like. But also, (laughs) we're here to talk about award season. So how is Donald Trump's election going to affect the Oscar race, guys?
2: I mean, I was thinking about it in terms of like, all the speeches at the actual show. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, because it'll be, you know, a month or so after the inauguration. I think it's going to be, like, really charged. And they haven't announced a host yet, have they? No. So I think that'll be really interesting. I mean, you know, there's all this kind of very, very thin silver lining talk about how comedy is going to be, you know, because it thrived during the Bush years, whatever. I don't, I mean, that's a silly... Argument, But, you know, I think for our purposes, it is kind of interesting to think about that it'll be a very politically charged, maybe contentious kind of show.
1: I mean, I I remember Michael Moore winning the Oscar and getting booed when he was on stage talking about George W. Bush. I feel like we're just going to get that like every year and then maybe nobody booing because of Hollywood and its demographics. Maybe. And I'm wondering, like,
4: do we try to start predicting this race through the lens of Trumpian America? Like, I think the Academy and especially like the new members that they ushered in this last year does not seem to overlap too much with with the Trump demographic. But then again, I thought I knew things last week and I don't know what I know.
3: I'm guessing there's going to be a divide. Between some of the older voters and the new crop of voters, having seen some of these folks and heard from them and read their strange op-eds and interviews in The Hollywood Reporter, I think there are Trump voters in the academy in the older ranks, for sure. Um, And those are the kinds of people who I always talk about this, but I know that there are some voters who felt that they were pressured into voting for 12 Years a Slave. And I think these are the kind of sort of like older, cranky white Democrats or more Republicans who probably felt pressured to vote for Obama and are feeling in some way kind of validated now to be like, I don't have to be PC anymore, you know, and look like that's a backlash that I guess we're finding out is what happens when you see a lot of progress. You know, there actually has been a lot of great progress. And I think when we talk about Oscars So White and really make it very clear that we expect to see change, we expect to see more representation, there's probably a lot of people who up until now have been quietly feeling attacked and now feel like they don't have to be so quiet anymore. So I think it'd be really interesting, possibly quite disturbing So how does that
1: take shape with the movies that we're actually dealing with this year? I mean, we talked about Moonlight a lot. I think Moonlight is really the best chance right now for a more diverse slate of nominees in terms of the actors and the director and the writer. I mean, so do you have Moonlight versus La La Land, which is a pretty white movie that's also a throwback to a nostalgic time? You know, you can have like the backlash against the Obama years of people voting for Trump. But in terms of movies, it's hard to kind of match them. Let's think about
3: four movies even. Okay. So La La Land Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea and Fences.
4: Okay, Fences. They
3: all kind of play in in a really interesting way. Moonlight is a kind of millennial black movie pushing in a really strong direction of kind of the Obama years, right? It's like, it's not good enough to just have a movie about the black experience. Well,
1: intersectionality being kind of a big part of activism, you know, recognizing not just gay rights, like black gay rights is different from that. Like It's a good representative of that, like you're right. talking about.
3: And then Fence is being more like, hey, you know what? These are working class people just like the people who voted for Trump. Can we start to see that this country is one country and that these experiences are not so driven by race lines? Then you got Manchester by the Sea, which is really about a bunch of white working class people, which is the sort of Trump base. And so to the extent that people – assuming that all this conversation is going to mostly happen within the progressive bubble – to the extent that people think, you know, the big screw up was not taking working class whites seriously enough. Here's an opportunity to do that with a film, and then La La Land's just like fuck all that. Which is why I think it, it dance. Just, I think it just kind of taps its way through. All I think that. probably yeah. right
2: because yeah, people are going to want to be just distracted. I think you know, and this is maybe a kind of a grim thing to bring up, but like there is an interesting parallel between you know one person who was accused of sexual assault and rode that to the highest office in land and another one who had a huge movie last January and then got completely creamed. I mean, you know, in terms of Nate Parker and Birth of a Nation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a weird kind of flip-flop and there's obviously a racial angle there and everything. So I think that this Oscar race has been more politicized than maybe we thought. Yeah. Now it just kind of stands in contrast, which is why I think come voting time in January or whatever February whenever it is everyone's gonna be so exhausted on both sides and they're just gonna be like the singing and dancing
4: and it's interesting I, I went to the movie theater and saw three films last Friday uh, because I did not want to be outside and it's hard to watch a movie and not see it through the lens of this election right now the movie that sort of really got under my skin in that way was Hacksaw Ridge which is Mel Gibson's film which I was debating whether or not I wanted to see it you know Richard liked it and so I wanted to see it and it has just a very strong make america great again nostalgia to it like that's it's dripping with that uh, even though it is a, like something of a war pacifist movie to a certain degree
2: it's also dripping with
4: blood <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. yeah it's really bloody yeah. you know and i was looking at who was in the audience and it was just you know the the people who are sort of aching with nostalgia are the people who went out to see Hacksaw Ridge on friday where i live i assume i just assumed that looking at them um so i don't know it's it's just interesting to see These parts of the country that maybe we weren't all either aware of or taking seriously enough or aware how big it was or whatever and sort of thinking back to things like American Sniper and the huge unexpected success of American Sniper Mm -hmm. and us being like, where did that come from? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm Watching this election, being like, "Oh, well, there it is again," you
1: know. But so. when you talk about the Oscars, I mean, American Sniper became this huge hit, but it was nominated for Best Picture, but it was kind of a non-factor in that year's Oscar race. So the people who are actually determining these awards are still the same coastal elites who all thought Hillary was going to win, us included.
3: Most of them, I think, most. Um, well, yeah. well, they're all the elites. I think there's definitely, again, I think there's a group of people. Yes, in that voting body who are not signed on to the sort of progressive program. But yeah, I feel like they're outnumbered. They've got to be outnumbered. I
1: think just in the sheer numbers of you know the way that they're. Inviting more people into the academy. I think those people were outnumbered to begin with. I think they're even more outnumbered now. And I I mean, Based on, you know, Hollywood's track record in the past, like, I think they're going to take it upon themselves to say, we do not represent the sexist and racist statements that the president-elect has said, and we're going to make our stand in some other way and say that we're not that. Yeah. Then again, looking back at, uh, you know, the last time kind of similar cultural people happened when it was 9-11 and then the Iraq War started, Chicago was the Best Picture winner of 2002. So. Well, that, so, that,
3: that La 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 the La La Land, Land <laughs> Yeah. You know, Jackie's another interesting one, because there's a, the other kind of Make America Great Again, the nostalgia for mm-hmm. a sort of classy, you know, I mean, that movie is sort of dark and brutal in its own ways, but at least you feel like the people are running the country are not... Psychopathic.
1: I wonder if watching Jackie would be too hard now. I haven't seen it yet, but the idea of kind of like lingering that, that sense of grief for a lost yeah. promise seems really hard. And it takes place yeah. like
2: literally like in the week after. Yeah. So I think yeah. it would we may be maybe a little too on yeah. the nose right now. Yeah. but mm-hmm. I don't know. I think, Joanna, it's interesting you brought up Hacksaw Ridge because obviously that's from a very controversial director. But his controversies maybe had more in line with the Academy body. You know, there's a lot of Jewish members of the Academy, and that, those were his particular offenses were kind of against Jewish people. Right. Um, but I think if that movie had done a little better at the box office, it's doing okay. I think it maybe would have a little more heat behind it, because the guy it's about was unquestionably a hero. I mean, he did an amazing thing. This guy saved 75 people single-handedly without a weapon or anything. So I think it has a righteousness to it that would have gone noticed had the movie kind of not gotten buried in the election cycle and you know amidst a bunch of other big movies
1: talking about box office briefly i think the numbers for the box office this past weekend were up significantly a lot of people doing what joanna did and escaping and arrival did particularly well kind of outpacing expectations and i it's another movie i still haven't seen but i don't know if there's a really good way to map it onto the current political moment but uh, well
3: there is yes okay uh because definitely because the concept is these aliens come to earth and the usual paranoia kind of explodes but at the end of the day you know i i don't want to give it away can you how do you how do you do this
4: it's not independence day no one's blowing up the white house it's more about holding hands around the world than it is yeah. about
3: you <laughs> know a struggle for mutual yeah. understanding and I think an interesting
2: thing about Arrival too is that you know it got good notices out of Venice and in Telluride and Toronto. Like people liked it, and people were into it, but it st- seems to have this very steady sense of momentum. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who didn't see screenings of it who just mm-hmm. you know paid to see it at the theater, and people really really liked it. So it it has a much more vocal and active fan base than I thought it would. So, I don't know, that could mean something. If its box office holds up, that means it holds in, into the conversation during
3: Critics Awards and, yeah. and beyond. So, What about Loving? Because that, that's a story about yeah. interracial marriage and progress and people again coming together across some kind of divide. I mean, is that... I think so. I think that movie, unfortunately, has gotten
2: a little lost in the shuffle. Yeah. You know, I think that Ruth Nega is still, you know, in in, in the mix for that. But I think you're right, Mike, that, you know, just anecdotally, I was talking to people last week and, you know, at various bars where I just drowned my sorrows for a few days. Um, (laughs) That's next week's episode. Yeah, I I recorded everything. Um, (laughs) It gets a little messy about hour three. Um, But like four different people who, you know, are in the business that we're in, were like, I'm going to go see Lovin. I think that's going to yeah. make me feel better, and it was mm. like so. I mean, it, may, it could serve as a kind of balm to right. know, help people through it. Well,
3: as, as we, as people prepare to sort of enter into another civil rights movement yeah. in resistance, to, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's galvanizing as well as kind of uh, soothing. No,
1: given that it's about a Supreme Court case in which there were nine
2: justices on the court, oh, uh, right. it
1: ah. might be uh, yeah. 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 how quaint, it's like a how quaint. Movie. Maybe know. we
2: should all just start watching Judge Dredd or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well. <laughs> Idiocracy.
3: Out. Can Idiocracy win Best Picture uh, yeah, 12 right. years yeah. after it you was were made? so much more Give correct. A special awards it's a, like, than, like a documentary now. Yeah. Well, if you're looking for escapism, as it turns out, there's <laughs>
1: something out this week that's there for you. Uh, yes. Although I hear Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, mm-hmm. a Harry Potter spin-off that opens this Friday, is actually has more political and modern-day ramifications than I thought.
2: Yeah, so I went to a screening of it last Friday when I was still on vacation, but the publicist sent me an invitation. I said, I think that might be what I need, is like some wizard escapism. So I went, and I thought it was great, but you know, the script is written by J.K. Rowling, and I don't know if people follow her on Twitter or have sort of followed her sort of post-Harry Potter novel life, but she's gotten more and more political and has kind of retconned a lot of politics into the original novels. I'm sure they were always there, but, you know, we weren't sort of aware well, of them. They eventually
1: become pretty strongly about fascism. Yes, and, yeah.
2: Know. I mean, but I think that, and I think that's a very European story. I mean, you know, yeah. people still with World War II on their minds. So Fantastic Beasts, while fun and whimsical and charming and, you know, Eddie Redmayne's kind of dittering around and Catherine Waterston <laughs> gives a great winning kind of moxie leading gal performance, there is this not even subtext, I mean, it's just text, really, about kind of identity issues and gay issues and then, you know, politics and fascism. So by the end of it, I was sort of a lot more moved than I expected to be, and it wasn't quite as soothed as I had hoped to be, but it is, I think, a pretty strong movie.
1: I mean, Joanna, you- we we're kind of pointing out that the Harry Potter franchise has like some Oscar history, not quite on the level of maybe Lord of the Rings. But uh, does it feel like now's the time for it to come back in there?
4: Right. It had, I think, 12 nominations in like, costume, original score, visual effects, cinematography, that sort of category. Colleen Atwood, of course, did designs for Fantastic Beasts. And they're incredible. I haven't seen the film yet. But you know, the blue coat alone is immediately, I think, iconic to the franchise. So I think it has a possibility, like a potential in some of those Technical categories, and then you can't ignore the fact that Eddie Redmayne has been like an Oscar. I don't think he's going to get nominated for playing Newt Scamander, and like obviously, Harry Potter franchise always had a high caliber of of actors in their films. But I feel like Eddie Redmayne, Oscar darling, for the past couple years, you know, might bump this higher up the list. And since there aren't kids involved, it doesn't feel as much like a kids movie. It's still a fantasy Mm. movie, but it's not a kids movie anymore, necessarily. And, you know, we as a culture decades on from when Harry Potter started, a decade on, have started taking fantasy more seriously than we used to. You know, Game of Thrones is the big winner at, at the Emmys and that sort of thing. And uh, Arrival, we talked about last year, we talked about Arrival and genre film and how we can sort of sneak in there nowadays. So I'm not saying it's going to be like Best Picture or anything like that, but I think in the score and costume and then maybe eventually over the next... F- decade as we get five
1: or six more of these films it, it could get there yeah i mean know? lord of the rings one best picture i really think anything is possible and it's foolish to write off something like this the the, the idea that it being a mega franchise starting though i do think the academy still is snobby about that like you know it, it will come to embrace your franchise if it feels authentic but when it's like five more newt scamander movies like it feels so commercy that i wonder if that's something they have to overcome
3: well i not to sound like an old person <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or, like, an old professor or something. But I always think of the Harry Potter series as, like, the dividing line between millennials and Gen X. Like, I could oh. give a shit about Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't get it at all. But it's such an article of faith with all millennials that they're obsessed with it. And I do wonder if, if this film has, you know, that kind of message that you're talking about. And if it comes at this time when millennials are sort of soul-searching. And if it does take off and become a kind of emblem for people. I'm just speculating, obviously, based on really not getting this stuff. But I mean, it'd be interesting to see what stuff does become a touchstone for your generation. Because really, I feel like the Trump thing, not to get too schmaltzy, but the Trump thing becomes... The starting point for you guys to decide what kind of world you want to live in mm-hmm. and how you're going to actively start shaping it and not ever let anything like this happen again.
1: Well, truthfully, we're kind of the old, we're the oldest millennials. So, you know, yeah. th- being politically aware for a 2000 election, I feel like I had my version of this already, but it's the like 24 year olds who voted for well, Obama once. But, but
3: as 30 something year olds, you guys are really heading into now like, being in
1: charge of things. You're in charge.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in two years, I could legally be president.
4: Yeah, when you you will, I believe. Yeah, It's so interesting what you say, uh, Mike. I hadn't thought about that. I've always wondered why I care about Harry Potter, but not enough. Like, Katie's only a few years younger than me, but she cares about Harry Potter a lot more than I do. And we usually care about things the same degree. (laughs) So I I really think it's, it's. just this couple of years where Harry Potter was not a part of my life. I was already in college before I read Harry Potter. So like just a couple of years and I'm I'm one of those cuspers, those millennial cuspers. So that isn't really interesting to me, but we we do have to think about the way in which J.K. Rowling, Voldemort, and all of that was part of this election narrative. Like people every week there would seem to be a story about Trump is Voldemort or J.K. Rowling yes. making some pithy comment about that. You yep. know, and there's this new threat in the new franchise, Gellert Gallag- Grindelwald played by all people, Johnny Depp. Uh, you know, but that that is potentially the big bad of the five films going forward. Another supervillain wizard. The seeds are definitely planted in this first film, which I can say confidently, having not even seen it. So that could be our Trump allegory going forward if we choose to make it, and that's fascinating
2: potentially. Yeah, I was talking to two of the young millennials who work in our social department here at VF and they had seen the film they went to the premiere and and they were really impressed with its sort of social politics and they felt it was really urgent and necessary so I think you're right Mike that like you know younger 20-somethings who were very much steeped in both Harry Potter but also kind of more social justice stuff they're going to find rallying cries where they want them and need them and we all are you know hopefully so yeah I think you're right that like if Warner Brothers, which I think did a really admirable job of not shying away from some of the darker, more serious themes, you know, in this big, they staked a lot of money on this thing, partly because J.K. Rowling wrote it. If she sticks with it and and keeps with that kind of ethos in mind, I think by the end they, they could be really, you know, in the way that I think the last Hunger Games film actually is a, an important mm-hmm. movie and mm-hmm. actually says a lot that young people need to hear.
1: Mm-hmm. Man, you guys just may be really excited to see be Fantastic Beasts. I'm well, gonna... yeah, I hope I don't oversell. It's, no, it's, a, I... it's
2: mostly a big, silly, spectacular, but yeah, it does but, like, have these you know, a,
1: a very pretty yeah. movie. Movie that isn't totally mindless seems like my yeah. good idea. My sense is there's like the fun adventure, and then there's like whatever's
4: going on with Ezra Miller, and that's like. Right where the darkness is so yeah, yeah it's a
2: good intuition Giovanna.
1: well also out this week <laughs> that i'm sure it will make a you know pittance of fantastic beast box office but manchester by the sea is finally coming out mike i feel like you keep talking about it in like tiny bursts on the podcast because you really wanted <laughs> to get into it i want to just give you the chance to kind of write your love letter to this movie because you've been a huge fan of it
3: all right but first i want to talk about how horrible the commercials are <laughs> oh, i, haven't I seen do them. not understand why matt damon is in this ad have you seen this ad no yeah. no you guys haven't seen this no matt damon is sitting there and he's like there's this great movie that my friends made that you should really see called mm-hmm. manchester by the sea oh, i guess they just thought like I guess no they one just, cares about
1: casey affleck so we have to put matt damon I in the
3: yes i guess they just looked oh, at the rough. at the, what they had for a trailer and they were like there's no way of breaking through mm-hmm. like if you watch sports or whatever it's just matt damon being like i really love you to check out this movie
1: <laughs> hey jason Bourne was a big feet. hit you know what? During, like,
4: Patriot game? Like, when the Patriots are playing, they yeah. play
3: a Matt Damon ad? I think, and I think during political stuff, too. I mean, what have I even been watching? I don't know. Yeah. Cable news and sports. Yeah. So anyway, don't be put off by the Matt Damon ad, or <laughs> or do uh, go if you like Matt Damon and he's telling you to go see this movie. But Kenny Lonergan is such a brilliant guy and, you know, can really access a kind of sadness that I think... It's a lot, but I do feel like we will be really cathartic, especially at this time for those people who do kind of dare to go in there and deal with it. And Casey Affleck gives really like a, an incredible performance in Casey, whatever issues he's had in his life. I mean, this is a phenomenal performance that kind of sneaks up on you. And it's got Kyle Chandler, who, you know, who doesn't just want more Kyle Chandler in their life. And then Michelle Williams has an incredible supporting role, but basically it's telling the story of these folks up in Massachusetts. They sort of are I guess working class like, pretty much, right? Kind of on I the board. Middle, yeah. middle class yeah. like just having dealt with some really really crazy bad luck and trying to get through which is you know at the end of the day what most of life is about probably so anyway i don't know what else to say about it except that i found it unbelievably moving and because it's ken lonergan it's gorgeously written and it's beautifully shot in that kind of way of like how beautiful can we make this semi crappy little like boating (laughs) massachusetts working town look yeah you know yeah i would
2: just add that what other cast members lucas hedges who who plays the teenage boy? Who's uh, amazing? Casey Affleck's um, nephew, incredible in the movie. I think it's one of the most natural, winning kind of teen performances I've seen in a long time. And you yeah. know, he um, so
3: much that kid has just so much confidence. It's yeah, incredible. yeah,
2: but it's not off-putting. It's, no, it's, I mean, I probably wouldn't have been friends with that kid in high school, but I would have thought he was like cool. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, as as a son of Massachusetts, I grew up in Boston, just south of Manchester by the sea. He just gets Massachusetts so. Yeah. Correct. And then a particular kind of people you know, in that area, you know, we've seen a lot of even from people who are from there, like Ben Affleck, like he allows accents like that happen in the town to happen. And right. you know, like yeah. there's a lot of leeway given even from Boston natives, but Lonergan just really zeroes in on it and lets them just be very natural and it it really works. So I felt sort of transported home to that sort of wintry. Kind of stony
3: mindset, I guess. Yeah, and and look, I'm Irish American background, so this is like, I your get, people. I know these people. I get these people. It's like unbelievable tragedy in the background, and a lot of like sort of stiff upper lip, and then you know plenty of drinking too <laughs> in the foreground. I found it really, really to be a gorgeous film. So
1: I've been told that as a new parent, I might need to uh, brace yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, like, these are like.
4: These are like the warnings I try to give Katie now when I walk into movies. (laughs) Oh yeah, Arrival. You warned me off of Arrival too. Yeah, I did. The thing about Manchester by the Sea is like the good question that Mike is asking is, are people going to be able to tolerate a film this bleak right now versus La La Land, which is, you know, the, the bright escapism. I am confident as Mike is, as Richard is, that if people get their butts into seats to see this movie, Everyone will be talking about Casey Affleck's performance. Just the question is if they're actually going to go and see it. I almost think that they should have had Kyle Chandler as Coach Taylor in the trailers instead of Matt Damon, That's right. like oh. you know, being being America's Dad and being yeah. like, "Come see me in this
1: movie I made. Come on, I will do whatever Coach Taylor tells me to do." Right?
3: Yeah, he could kind of give it a little tough love, like I know you don't want to sit through it, but just like, it's a do it. hearts, you're going you yeah. to be.
1: Do- this is what
4: we do to win state you have to go see this
3: Um. it's almost unthinkable that a person not watching this out of obligation will watch it right now I'm just going to admit I mean I feel like unless you're a culture vulture which there's a lot of them there's culture vultures like those people should absolutely see this because I think it's getting toward masterpiece territory and then anyone who's voting for the Oscars please actually go see the fucking movie because you are voting for the Oscars yeah
4: what might happen is what happened with like what J.K. Simmons I don't know what Whiplash did at the box office right but I don't think that Whiplash was like a huge hit but you get the swell of critic circle support around something and then the narrative builds up mm-hmm. and then you get J.K. Simmons taking an Oscar, right? And so if Casey Affleck wins a bunch of critics awards leading up to these bigger things then it just might be in the narrative. You might not have seen Manchester by the Sea but by then you're like well I hear Casey Affleck's great in that movie. Yeah. so
3: It's not going to light up the multiplex but it, the quality right. is so high that hopefully it will gain that sort of yeah. traction over time.
2: Yeah, I need to re-watch the movie. Katie and I are both in critic circles this year, so we both will be voting on awards, and you know I have some some ideas in my head for certain categories, but best actor is still sort of mm. a question mark, and I think that like I loved his performance when I saw Manchester in January, so I don't know, I need to rewatch it.
4: My understanding for those who saw it at Sundance is that it's been recut slightly, and actually a little bit more levity has been added to it. So oh. if you can believe it was even bleaker at Sundance, <laughs> so, there
3: you go. Just one final note for the film, in case people are listening and asking themselves, I mean. It's it's incredibly wrenching, and there's some really emotional stuff, but it's not like Son of Saul. I mean, you know, there's a lot of fun oh, yeah. stuff. There's a lot of delightful stuff, and it's very just real. You're just like living with people who are trying to get through stuff, and I think the emotional stuff ends up, at least for me, becoming very cathartic. So even though you are sort of emotionally drained at the end of it, it's kind of in a good way. I feel like I, I personally could use an emotional oil change right now, mm-hmm. so maybe I should go see it again.
1: God, I saw Son of Salt the day of the Bataclan shooting last year. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. But it was, it was honestly the, kind of that same kind of catharsis being like, I just want to really feel bad. Yeah. And I felt yeah. bad and I, I still that. did. I don't yeah. know. It was weird timing.
3: I'm Bobby Finger.
0: And I'm Lindsay Weber.
3: Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that?
0: Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large.
3: For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spillunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote.
0: Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina...
2: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: So now we'd like to welcome Rebecca Keegan, who has started as of last week at Vanity Fair as our Hollywood correspondent, and is therefore making her first appearance on Little Gold Men. Rebecca, thank you so much for calling in.
3: Welcome, Rebecca. Hi.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, you uh, as we as we sit here in New York and uh, try to pretend we know everything about the Oscar race, uh, you're actually there meeting Academy voters. So I feel like you're going to prove us totally wrong in all of our predictions. As we were about the election. That's what I set out to do. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, we, we finally admit that we are terrible at predicting things. So we've decided to call in someone who actually knows what they're talking about.
0: Exactly. I'm honored to be that person.
1: Yeah. So you were at one of the many events that kind of feels like the kickoff of awards season. But this one was actually hosted by the Academy. So I think it gets special treatment. The Governor's Awards have been going on for eight years, I think, separate from the Oscar telecast, giving honorary Oscars to people. This year it was Jackie Chan and Frederick Wiseman. But uh, as you were, as we were talking about when you are going after cover, it, it's really a huge meet and greet session for people who are in the Oscar hunt. So uh, what was the vibe like at the Governor's Wars on Saturday?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when the Academy first peeled this off as a separate thing, people were very critical. They didn't want the honorees to be, they thought they were being sort of siphoned off to their own less cool party. It's turned out to be a more cool party. <laughs> because it's not televised. It's very relaxed and loose, and there's a long cocktail hour and a long period during dinner where people with contending films, executives, actors, directors, are just sort of working the room and schmoozing. Saturday Night was kind of interesting because people we're still sort of feeling the election vibes as the governor's awards were going on. There were seven or eight thousand people marching down Wilshire Boulevard chanting love Trump's hate. And of course, most of the people who were in the ballroom itself. We're Democratic voters and Hillary Clinton donors, and we're making sense of the election as this sort of glittery event was unfolding.
3: We were just talking about how the election will affect the Oscars, and one of the theories that I have is that there is uh, maybe a small, but there is a group of Trump supporters within the Academy. I'm just going to fact-check myself here. Do you think that that's true?
0: I do think that's true. I mean, if you look at the reaction within the Academy from a small but vocal minority to the attempts to diversify... There are several older, mostly white, mostly male academy members who felt victimized by that. I felt the potential of their voting rights being taken away or of the bar being lowered. I have talked to some of those people, and some of those people are, in fact, Trump voters. There are Trump voters in Hollywood. There are Republicans in Hollywood. They're quieter because they are afraid of damaging their careers, mm.
3: but
1: they do exist. Yeah. And do you feel like they feel like they're able to speak out more now, like this is going to embolden them in a way that they couldn't have been under the Obama administration? Well,
0: it's interesting. I was talking to one gentleman yesterday who's a director who voted for Trump and has said that he's actually gotten worse. In terms of his ability to even talk with his friends in Hollywood since the election, he said his friends who are Democrats are so emotional that he was at you know a lunch on Friday that was just really uncomfortable. They couldn't even talk as friends, which they had been able to do, say, during the Bush administration and at other times when Republicans were ascending it didn't seem to affect their friendship. He says, right now, at least, this feels
2: different. So what would you say right now, like, just judging from, you know, the ceremony and seeing who was schmoozing, like, if you had to handicap it, like, you know, election aside, what movies do you think are kind of surging right now?
0: It's interesting. It's hard to know from... Sort of who's talking with whom. I will say that the VIP of award season so far is Lin Manuel Miranda, <laughs> who was the who was the person. Literally, everyone wanted to meet executives, actors. Everyone was like storming his table. He was there promoting the songs from Mo- Moana. So I I will be shocked if a, a song from Moana is not nominated. And if Moana itself is not nominated, that doesn't tell you a lot about the sort of best picture race. But I think it does tell you some interesting things about sort of Hollywood, and w- w- who counts as a big deal here?
1: Well, we talked last week about the Best Original Song category, and pretty much all of us came down saying, if Lin-Manuel Miranda doesn't win an Oscar, we don't know what's going on with the world. Yeah,
0: clearly everybody in town wants to be this man's friend, so I think you having a money on on the right one right there.
2: And that would be his EGOT, I believe, right?
0: Would it? Would that take him all the way?
2: I think it would. I could be wrong. Maybe there's not an Emmy. So did anything else stand out for you at these awards? I mean, were there any anecdotes or any little moments that kind of informed this year's Oscar race for you?
0: Well, yeah, you know, I'm trying to think. It, it was interesting to see. There were some movies there who the studios bought their table at the Governor's Awards, sort of months ago, before they knew how the movies would shake out. One that was there in force was Queen of Katwe, this Disney movie starring Lupita Nyong'o and David Oyelowo and directed by Mira Nair, who I think a lot of folks thought might have some awards juice. The movie didn't end up doing that well. Those are all people who people in Hollywood kind of adore, so lots of people were talking and schmoozing that table. But it's interesting how I don't think people are now expecting Queen of Katwe to be a major player in the awards race. And nevertheless, you see the director and the stars sort of much beloved getting a lot of attention there. It's also interesting to see who the presenters were, like Nicole Kidman presented for Andy Coates, who was winning an honorary Oscar for her editing in movies like Lawrence of Arabia. There's really no reason for Nicole Kidman to present to Andy Coates. They've not worked together. They don't really have a relationship. This was a nice little machination of the Weinstein Company to get some shine on Nicole Kidman for her supporting role in Lion. Mm -hmm. So you see how people kind of, the studios are kind of like pushing which levers they can to get a little attention for the performances they hope the Academy members in the room will take note of.
1: In your experience, how much can you really tell who's going to get nominated for an Oscar just by whose face has been present the entire time? I mean, I think we've seen examples of people who hustle the entire season and get a nomination, and then people who are totally absent and don't bother to show up and win anyway. Does being ever-present in that way really give you a huge edge?
0: It's fascinating because, yeah, as you say, I mean, there are people like Woody Allen who don't even bother to come to town and end up nominated. And then there are people who work the buns off like Emma Thompson did a couple of years ago for that movie about the making of Mary Poppins Saving Mr. Banks. and didn't end up nominated. And she did like every screening. She was charming. She was everywhere. So it's funny. I'm always fascinated by how the studios talk the actors into doing so much when <laughs> truly there does not seem to be a huge relationship <laughs> between someone's presence I will say, if you're an actor who is like maybe Mahershala Ali, who's lesser known to Academy members, seeing him some of them for the first time in Moonlight, I think it does make an impact when someone like that is out and about meeting people.
3: He is out and about. He
0: has been, and yeah. it, I mean, he was he was at the Telluride Film Festival. He has been at various events around town, and for someone like him who is not as well known I think it can make an impact I think when you're already a known entity like Woody Allen or an Emma Thompson I'm not sure that it does
1: yeah this seems like the Brie Larson effect last year I mean it's different for young women who are the exciting new thing but she was everywhere and kind of introducing herself and it, the momentum just kind of seemed to build up as being like here's this new face of this person that we've met and now she's going to be anointed and, and
3: Eddie Redmayne the year before
0: yeah yeah right yeah I remember it's funny when Room premiered at Telluride which of course was the very beginning of the season Brie went to this picnic that the academy throws at telluride and they had a t-shirt with an oscar on it and she was laughing she said you know i was going to wear that for my interview today but that seemed a little on the nose (laughs) the point being that heading into the fall she knew she was walking through award season with the hope of being nominated for and ultimately winning an oscar this was not like some surprise thing that she was on every red carpet all fall
3: rebecca is there anyone that you were surprised not to see there
0: oh gosh that's interesting um well, you know Robert De Niro wasn't there, and he had just had his film premiere at AFI, so he's clearly in town. He mm-hmm. had done an actor's roundtable for the LA Times, which is an indicator that his, the studio releasing his film, Sony Pictures Classic, sort of wants him to be out and about promoting his film with the potential for awards. So that was kind of interesting to me. I don't know why exactly he wasn't there, but there are some people who uh, Ryan Gosling, who of course everyone's excited about La La Land, he's been filming a movie, and so unable to be as present on the trail as you would hope he would be. Emma Stone has been doing a lot of the heavy lifting.
3: Well, we were talking about, it would be shocking if Emma Stone weren't there, but we've been talking about best actor, and you do kind of have three potentially front runners who I wonder if they're really going to campaign, Ryan, Casey, and Denzel.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a good question. Casey was there. He was. Uh, okay. but He was there, but he is for sure not the kind of bang-the-drum campaigner, for this film and just in general, that's not his nature. Denzel's is a good point. I didn't see him there. I don't think he was there. Fences is certainly a movie on everybody's lips. I think that Paramount would like to see Denzel in the director race as well as the actor race. Yeah. And they will need him to get the audience out for this movie. So yeah. um they need his star power. So it'll be interesting to see how much he does and how selective he is.
2: Yeah, I'm going to an event on Thursday night in New York where he's gonna be at with Viola, supposedly. But, you know, these things mm-hmm. kind of can change. But yeah, I'm curious, Rebecca, you know, we met briefly at Telluride. That was my first time there. And there's so many people from L.A., kind of high powered people. It's expensive to go. So that really does feel like the kickoff to the kind of formal award season. And now you have, you know, something like the Governor's Awards. What would you say is the next thing? Like, what are you looking forward to next that might kind of propel this story along even further?
0: Well, an event that's pretty important is the Screen Actors Guild nominations. I mean, that has a huge correlation to Oscar nominations, particularly the Cast Ensemble Prize is a major predictor of Best Picture. You know, the Golden Globe nominations happen the same week. They're really not that relevant because the Hollywood Foreign Press Association doesn't have a lot of overlap with the Academy. But the Screen Actors Guild does. For people who are sort of handicapping, it's a pretty... Useful event in terms of looking at what gets nominated.
1: When are we expecting those?
0: It's sometime in the, like, I don't know, second or third week of December. I know that it's the same week. As the Golden Globe nominations in both days, I have to, like, wake up at 5 a.m. and sit at a laptop. That's all that I remember about that particular week every year.
1: Yeah, we're heading into that time of year where it's waking up early and sitting in a laptop and then spending your Sunday night sitting and watching people in beautiful dresses at an award show and uh, not being at the award show yourself. Although, Rebecca, we'll be sending you to all these events. You'll be dolled up all through the winter.
0: Yes. I mean, it's not the coal mines, but yes, it is a very particular it's a very particular time of year and it does start to feel like by the middle of January like don't drive down Hollywood Boulevard with your windows down or someone will throw an award in it like it, <laughs> it gets a
1: little relentless at a certain point
3: hey by the way Lynn manuel Miranda has both a daytime Emmy and a primetime Emmy holy cow how do you oh, win a daytime nice. Emmy? Uh, yeah, really. Sesame Street <laughs> of course and the primetime Emmy was for the 67th Tony Awards yeah so So he'll have there's there's nothing that guy can't do he'll have the
1: EGOT and the Pulitzer there's really the Peacock all
3: the awards (laughs) the Peacock the (laughs) Peacock yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> well Rebecca this is far from the last time we will get your insight from LA uh, on award season and um, you know we'll get you in a studio sometime hopefully we'll have you here in New York to uh, really teach us what's going on but in the meantime thank you so much for calling and filling us in oh thanks for having me guys this was fun
2: and roll your window up you don't yeah you don't want an award <laughs> I
0: don't
1: want an award to hit me in the head <laughs> So before we end, we're going to go big before we go home. And uh, as we were discussing Manchester by the Sea and Casey Affleck, let's talk about best actor. This is an interesting category we keep checking in on, and I feel like everyone's predictions keep changing. So guys, uh, who's going to win best actor?
4: I'll go because people, <laughs> I feel like people always take my vote. Um, I, I, I'm going to say people are going to vote for like the charismatic black man that they will miss leaving the Oval Office and throw in for Denzel Washington. <laughs> I thought you were uh, going to say Barack Obama. Win <laughs> Barack <Center>. Obama <laughs> won an Oscar. No, I mean, like, I think that, you know, uh, my heart belongs to Casey Affleck. I haven't seen what Denzel is doing, but given all we discuss at the top of the show, I, I would say Denzel.
2: That's a really pretty damn good theory. Uh, I'm going to say Corey Lewandowski because mm. he <laughs> did such a good performance pretending that he wasn't working for the Trump campaign while he was at CNN. Yeah. Uh, no, it actually wasn't a great performance, but...
1: Your most viral yeah. tweet of uh, yeah. <laughs> comparing him yeah. to the usual suspects. Yeah,
2: oh boy. No, I think that Joanna has a good idea there, but I'm going to say that the La La Land surge is unbeatable and that Gosling finally gets his Oscar.
1: mmm yeah it almost feels like Gosling hasn't been nominated because he's been so underserved by the Oscars he has been nominated for half Nelson like ages ago, a long time ago now. Yeah, yeah no and he's done so much great work since then I'm putting my chips toward another nostalgia surge and saying that Sully and Tom Hanks are going to make their way through yeah I'm
3: America uh, needs a dad a little hug from dad well right
1: yeah now. I mean like think of how much comfort David Pumpkins gave us toward the end of <laughs> the election we need him yeah. now more than ever and uh, I'm still bitter about him not getting nominated for Captain Phillips so I would take this as a victory for that instead
3: Speaking of captains, I do not think Viggo Mortensen will win Best Actor, but I would love to see him slide in. I think I'll stop talking about this uh, after this. But that film has its own new resonance, I think, in light of all the crazy shit that's happened. There's something about a guy who's sort of progressive ideals are so intense that he like takes all his kids to move out into the country and by the way i am looking into my own survivalist um, stuff right now
4: should we all become back to landers Is yeah it may, may okay. end up be-
3: becoming a bit of a handbook for people i think <laughs> all right. uh, look i see some problems for casey will people see the film does he have the charisma or the desire to kind of go out and glad hand but uh i'll stick with i'll stick with casey i think it's a, it's such a phenomenal performance that I would like to see it rise to the top
1: that does it for this week's little gold men thank you as always for listening and please rate and review us on iTunes if you can we really appreciate it and it helps us find new listeners you can find us all at vanityfair.com and on Twitter I'm at Katie rich Richard
2: and
1: Mike is at Mike underscore Hogan and Joanna is at Joe wrote this and we're all at little gold men this week's episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner and thanks to Lara Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best advice for how we're going to get through the next four years goes to Mike Hogan. What about
2: loving? See, I think it goes to Joanna Robinson.
4: It's more about holding hands around the world. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.